Welcome to Selfless Security Chat Chat, episode 163 for the 3rd of September, 2014. I'm Chester Wisniewski here with Paul Ducklin. Hello, Chester. Uh, because it's September, you could just about say it's the beginning of summer. So uh, I guess that means for you, it's almost winter, eh? Well, not quite yet, although uh, I could certainly be fooled by the, the conditions outside at the moment. We got a pretty busy week for news stories. I, you know, with traveling and things, uh, I was a little bit behind. But I saw you did a post on a, a story that unfortunately has reared its head several times previously around WPS or Wi-Fi protected setup, which maybe isn't as protected as we thought. Yes. Uh, so just to review what you wrote about a couple of years ago, actually it was back in 2011 when this first became news. It's a, a mechanism that's supposed to make it easy. You know, if you have a chum round who wants to use your Wi-Fi and he's got his iPhone and he has to type in 15 characters with capitals and punctuation and digits and all mixed up, that's far too difficult. So you turn over your router, there's an eight-digit eight password on the bottom that he can type in using this special Wi-Fi protected setup protocol. It always struck me as an absurd thing to do. Um, <laughs> but what's happened now is that uh, this Swiss chap has revisited WPS and he's found out that there are implementation errors to go with the design errors that came out earlier, uh, whereby it's our good old friend poor randomness. Well, this reminds me of uh, research by uh, Professor Anderson and, you know, flaws in chip and pin showing that absolutely ATM machines were, you know, supposed to be choosing a random nonce. Uh, but they weren't very random, and that you know led to being able to you know do fraudulent transactions. And I guess we should point out to listeners that aren't familiar with all the different concepts around random out there. What we're talking about, of course, is pseudo random number generators or PRNG. And in a pseudo random sequence, if you know how it's being calculated and you know what value was seeded, then arguably you can know what thing will be next in the sequence because it is predictable. It's not very random at that point, is it? The key thing is that there are actually two sorts of pseudo-random number generator. There are ones that are suitable for cryptographic use uh, and ones that are not suitable for cryptographic use. I know that sounds strange given that they're both pseudo-random. The problem with the non-cryptographic ones is that if you have one or more previous outputs, you may be able to reconstruct the internal state of the generator and predict everything that comes next. That's what happened in this new WPS attack. Uh, a cryptographic random number generator avoids that. In other words, the stuff that comes out of it, uh, although it's only pseudo-random, doesn't give you any insights into what's going on inside it. And it's very important that you don't mix up these two types of generator. The former, the one that simply generates random numbers that aren't cryptographic, generally are a lot faster. So they're great for things like Monte Carlo simulations if they produce good quality randomness. But they're not suitable for cryptographic use because the past helps you predict the future. Well, if I were to use the past to predict the future, I might have come up with the fact that Mozilla could lose some more username and password combinations. Oh, dear. Well, how does that saying go? Once is a misfortune, twice is carelessness. This is now their third time. They did it twice in August 2014. It's not a very good look for an organization that produces 
the browser that two years in a row won our We Trust This Browser the Most competition. Yeah, and the excuses aren't getting any better either. In this case, they're sort of <laughs> suggesting that the box, uh, you know, wasn't meant to be in production. That reasoning wears pretty thin with me. I, I've been saying a lot in public conversations I've had at conferences and on panels and this kind of thing for, for a while now that this idea of where the data is located somehow having any relevance to how it's protected is a very outmoded concept. Uh, you and I did a podcast on firewalls not that long ago, and we discussed this this whole inside versus outside, or, oh, it was in the engineering department, or, oh, it's on a laptop, so it's dangerous, but if it's on a desktop, it's fine. Th this concept does not apply anymore. If you've got sensitive information, it doesn't matter where it is. It doesn't belong in a test environment. It doesn't belong in a production environment unprotected. Absolutely. They had a test server. And they said, oh, dear, sorry, for three months it was inadvertently or maybe advertently, but they didn't realize it was such a bad idea, uh, publicly accessible. But don't worry, we've deleted all the files now. Right. Yeah, the, 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 there's no copies of those hashes, I'm sure, that have uh, ended up anywhere, in, in, including, I'm sure, in the Google cache. I guess the good news for people, if you do use Mozilla services, in this case it was the bugzilla database and uh they were hashed and salted they don't meet i guess our current standard that you've written about paul uh, saying you know you really should be doing this bcrypt or this style of doing lots and lots of iterations to slow down brute force attempts but if you have a pretty solid password at least they were salted and hashed right yes apparently they're going to be moving to bcrypt that's good news bcrypt actually uh does typically tens of thousands of iterations of a hash of your password that doesn't add any uh, cryptographic strength to the hash that comes out. It just means that if you want to try a million passwords, it takes you the same time that it might otherwise have taken to check 10 billion passwords. Let's hope that Mozilla isn't moving to bcrypt uh, to make it harder to crack stolen passwords because they expect to lose passwords again. The good news here as well, which is the reason we do these things is a bit of an insurance policy. Nobody wants to lose their password database, but we understand that accidents can happen. And hopefully you're right. It's not their plan to lose them. But at the same time, um, even if it isn't your plan to lose passwords, it should be your plan to protect them properly. Well, while we're speaking about Mozilla, let's talk about some positive things, or I guess I, I guess it's positive. It depends on people's perspective. But Firefox OS, which is their smartphone OS that's largely HTML-based, and they're taking the approach of a very granular permissions approach, which many you know users of Android have complained about, and in, in in Google's choice to eliminate the ability to kind of granularly choose which things to allow an app to do. Uh, what's what's the Mozilla approach? Well, as you say, Chester, there's the idea of granularity, that you can have an app that maybe wants to know your location and to use the camera and to use the microphone. And perhaps you can say, you know what, I'm okay with it knowing my location, but I'll say no to the camera. But the other big difference from Android is that you can defer making those permission choices until the time that the app actually needs the permission. Whereas Google, an app declares all the permissions it will want up front, even if that means giving permission to an app to use hardware in your device that's a feature of the app that you're probably never going to use, like the camera, say. The downside, of course, 
it does make things much more cumbersome. You know, if you think you've got 20 apps and each has 10 different permissions, that's 200 options in a GUI that you have to go and decide, do I want to allow, do I want to deny, or do I want to prompt? The flip side, of course, you do have that control if you want it. Yeah, I'm I'm all for the idea of having uh, granularity and choice, and I love the idea of it prompting me when it needs it as opposed to up front, but I'm a little skeptical that uh, the average person is really going to understand the implications of a lot of these choices. I mean, I see this regularly on my Android where something goes, oh, it wants access to read and write files from your SD card. I'm imagining why it might want to do that, going, does it need to? Do I say yes? I can't really say no if I want the app because there is no granularity in Android. So I do like the, you know that idea. But then I also wonder, am I going to have a call from my mom and dad when their phone asks them this question saying, I don't know what this means. What do I do with this, right? It's reminiscent of browser security warnings, uh, you know, certificate warnings. And of course, they also have a little feature where you can just tick a box that says, remember this choice. The example they give is, this Maps app wants to access your location. And of course, after the fifth time it asks, you're probably just going to say, remember forevermore. And then you're kind of back in the Android boat, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So last but not least, uh, there's uh, some news about the Mars rover getting a bit of a reboot. Uh, kind of an interesting story when it relates to the flash memory and kind of how flash memory behaves in computers. And we have to remember, of course, that the, the rovers have been there for quite some time. Um, what's, what's NASA's big plan? Well, there are two still operating. There's Opportunity. Uh, which has been there for more than a decade uh, and was supposed to last about three months. So it has this flash memory that after 10 years appears to be wearing out. Although flash has no moving parts in the strictest sense, it does have moving electrons. The reason flash memory can keep its data, even if power is removed, like a hard disk can, is because it has this, this uses these special sort of transistors called floating gates which are on a really, really nanometrically thin layer of insulation. Uh, and with extra voltage, you can basically shove electrons through the insulation and get them to sit there, and that charge will be retained indefinitely. And by reversing the big voltage, you can drain the charge off again. Unfortunately, jamming electrons, even if it's only through 20 nanometers of material, can apparently cause it to undergo structural physical changes. And so literally and figuratively, flash memory can wear out. Random alterations in memory are not good for the sanctity of the data that you're collecting and aiming to beam back to Earth. No, certainly not. And I think people often don't understand how this technology works. I think that was a really good explanation because when we think about our SSDs and our desktops and laptops or even the flash memory in our phones and cameras, we don't really think about it as anything other than this magical memory that just keeps data in it. And it's really important to understand the abstraction that's present in a modern day drive or disk or storage medium. And in fact, this is true even for hard disks. There's quite a lot of difference between 1980s hard disks when many of us learned about the technology and went, ah, I'm going to write this series of bits and bytes to sector 72 and that doesn't really exist anymore. You tell a disk today or a flash memory storage device, I'd like to store these 32 bytes at sector 72. 
and it decides it's going to write it wherever it damn well pleases. Um, it, it doesn't really necessarily have a direct correlation anymore, which has real implications when you're trying to erase things, right? Like we talk about wiping zeros over a, a hard disk in order to make it safe to sell to someone. That doesn't really work anymore, does it? No, it doesn't. And that's why I think this Opportunity Rover story, apart from the fact that it's almost science fiction, these guys are re-imaging a computer 200 million kilometers away. You know, sort of boy's own adventure to the power of 17. But the thing is that you may have a camera or a mobile phone or even an SSD device in your laptop. And you think, you know what, I've not had any of these problems that NASA is having. I've never had bad sectors. It all just seems to work. And as you say, the reason is that any faults which are developing, generally speaking, they're actually masked by almost a miniature operating system that's running in that device. That does have some potential consequences when it comes time to retire or dispose of flash-based storage devices. Uh, It's also a good reason why if you only ever write encrypted data onto the device and you never store the actual unencrypted key on the device, then you don't have to worry so much when it comes to disposal time. Because you know that if someone does read back the current sectors, the original sectors or whatever, all they're going to get is shredded cabbage. Well, and that's, I guess, an alternative approach is literally to shred the cabbage. I, I, I've got one of these shredders that's designed for shredding credit cards in addition to paper. And uh, turns out if you remove the small little circuit board from a thumb drive that has the flash memory on it and drop it in there, um, that also does take care of the problem. Another way I've heard, this is environmentally completely unsound, is that you tape it to a clay pigeon and shout, pull! Well, that's a fantastic way to end this week's chat chat. As always, all of our podcasts are available over at podcasts.sophos.com. The latest security news, as always, is over at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. The podcast you can get on an RSS feed via iTunes, TuneIn, or over at soundcloud.com slash sophos security. And until next time, stay secure.